new ideas, thought-leading opinions and the latest ways of working. This is the School Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the School Leadership Podcast brought to you by NAHT Edge and NAHT. Our guest this month is Dr Jill Berry. Jill is the former head of Dame Alice Harper School in Bedford. Since leaving leadership in 2010, she's worked as an associate for the National College for Teaching and Leadership, carried out a range of educational consultancy work and completed a part-time doctorate in education. In her new book, Making the Leap, Moving from Deputy to Head, Jill offers practical advice on how to take the ultimate step in school leadership. In the first part of this wide-ranging interview, Jill explores the journey from middle leader to senior leader, the characteristics of highly effective middle leaders, and the fundamental differences between middle and senior leadership. Engaging content and revealing insights. In conversation with James Bowen. So Jill, thank you for joining me. We're going to talk about your book today, uh, which is focused on that, that journey from deputy headship to headship. Um, but I'm conscious that your skills and knowledge are far broader than that. So if it's okay, I'd like to have a conversation that's far broader than that and perhaps start with a conversation around middle leadership and then we can take that journey through, if you like, from middle leadership, deputy headship to headship and, and get your views across the board, if that's okay. That's absolutely fine. So, so let's start then. In terms of middle leaders specifically, from your experience, what would you say the key characteristics are of effective middle leaders? I think... I think leadership is very simple and it's very complex. It's simple because all leaders at any level, their core business is to get the best from the people they lead. It's complex because how you do that, tuning into what people need from you and getting that balance of support and challenge right, that's the the tricky bit, if you like. I think with middle leaders particularly, middle leaders need to be good at recognising potential, at encouraging and inspiring and lifting, but also holding to account and expecting a great deal, high aspirations from the people they lead. But if they can encourage each member of their team to be their professional best, then the team as a whole will be really successful. And and it can be, you know, what's the, the phrase, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, because Dylan William talks about working as a team, rather than just working in a team. The best middle leaders make sure that the teams they lead work as a team, pulling together all those complementary skills so that the team can become a beacon of excellence, whatever kind of middle team it is. So in a sense, is it the case that the skills you need to be an effective middle leader are not too dissimilar from the skills you end up needing to be an effective head teacher? I would say so, and I would say to go back a stage... The skills that we use in our teaching are relevant. Every teacher is a leader. Every teacher is leading learning in their classroom, getting the best from the children. It's not a huge step to go from that to getting the best from the adults and through those adults reaching more children. I don't think to be a really good leader you have to have been a consistently outstanding teacher. I think you need to have been a good teacher. You need to be credible. But if you are good at getting the best from children then it may be that you can hone the skills as a leader to get the best from adults. I do believe that the best preparation to be a good deputy head is to have been a good middle leader, because all you're doing is you're scaling it up. You're extending the the scope, if you like, from leading a particular domain that may be very clearly defined to leading whole school initiatives. I think the best preparation for being a good head is to be a good senior leader, 
So these are not, it's not a different job, it's just the scale is different. And yes, there will be some technical know-how that you have to master, but you can learn that. Whereas leading, getting the best from people, that's what you're doing at all levels, including as a teacher with the children in your classroom. So when people are looking to appoint middle leaders, would you recommend not so much looking for the technical skills, but looking far more for the, the personal skills in people that, and that they could develop the technical skills later? I, I would say so. Every, every new job I did required me to do things I'd never done before. And that's part of the appeal. Why would you want to go for another job if it was exactly the same as the job you'd been doing? And certainly whenever I was appointing, and the advice I would give to anyone appointing leaders at any level is you're looking for potential so you're not just ticking off what they have done they've done that therefore they can do this you're looking for transferable skills so they may never have done this but these are the skills it requires and they have honed those skills in a different role in a slightly different way Um, and if they can demonstrate that they can step up to that new level of responsibility because they've got those skills and they've got the temperament so that they are determined, conscientious, committed, keen to learn. We're always learning in every new job. You know, we've never cracked it from day one. It is about potential. It's about what you might do in the future. What you've done in the past is relevant because that's the evidence. And if you've had impact, then you can use that to strengthen your case that I can have impact in a slightly different role in a slightly different way. But it is about moving up and moving on and stepping up. So it's not about just doing exactly the same in a new place, is it? So let's talk about that that journey then from teacher to middle leader. Mm -hmm. Because I imagine there'll be people listening to the podcast who have just found out that they're taking a middle leadership role in September. Never done it before, been a classroom teacher. Um, What would you say are the sort of biggest challenges that people are likely to face as they make that transition from class teacher to, to leader? I think... When you have worked mainly with with children in your classroom um, and you haven't actually had responsibility for the professional performance of your colleagues, then moving into your first middle leader role where suddenly you've still got your teaching and your planning and your marking, but you're also having to help adults achieve what they can, then that is obviously a challenge. It's harder to get adults to do what you think they perhaps should do than it is children. They're they're less biddable. They may be more resistant. Um, You may come in as a middle leader with fewer years' experience, or you may be younger, not necessarily, but you have to establish yourself. You have to win respect. You have to earn people's confidence. You have to feel confident yourself. And if if it's a job you haven't done before, you may have a degree of self-doubt. Can I do this? I don't know whether I can do this. And you have to be able to build that faith and confidence and and show people that you you can do a good job, that you are committed, you are dedicated, um, you are keen to succeed and to help them succeed. So a good middle leader will actually help the people in their team to do a good job, not necessarily by making everything easy for them, because sometimes people are ready for challenge. They want something to get their teeth into And I would always advise middle leaders, don't think in terms of just trying to smooth the path and make it easy. We don't do that for children either, do we? We help them deal with struggle and challenges. You need to do that for the adults. Is that a trap that middle leaders can fall into, particularly if they're new to the role, if they're not careful, which is almost creating kind of sense of learned helplessness, that actually I'm the leader, so I need to fix everything, solve everything, do everything. And I suppose linked to that as well, sometimes I hear middle leaders sort of say about that, that first time that experience of 
delegating. I want it done a certain way, and I find it really hard to delegate because it won't be done to the standard the way I want it. Is that is that a challenge? Do you think? It, I think it is. I think delegation is difficult, partly because yes, you have to be able to let go of the reins and and trust people to do it in a way that is right for them, and it isn't necessarily the way you would do it. But also just the very fact of if I try to delegate, will people turn around and say, "Well, that's your job. What are you getting paid for? You've got the title, you've got the badge, you should be doing it." So it's tempting to do too much and not to, to build the capacity of the people in your team to get them doing more. Um, you don't want to seem to be lazy. You don't want to be seen to be dodging jobs. And you want to show everyone you're competent. And I think this is true at any level. I can remember as a, as a deputy, a new deputy, I'm quite good at solving problems, you know, finding solutions, moving things on. And when that happens, people will bring you a lot of problems. And it's very tempting to take those problems from them. Well, I can sort that out for you. But actually, that's not what leadership is about. Leadership is working with them to help them sort it out for themselves. Because otherwise, what happens when you're not there anymore? Are they going to fall apart? As you say, learned helplessness. Um, so it's helping people step up and it's working with them to find solutions rather than finding solutions for them. Sometimes you, know, you don't have all the answers. You're not the repository of all the wisdom anyway. It's arrogant to think you are. Sometimes there's a sustainability capacity issue yourself. If you take on everyone else's problems, then that becomes unworkable in the end. But I think the most important thing is it doesn't help them develop and grow and build and strengthen the best leaders when they've gone the team they led grows stronger if it falls apart when they've gone actually they weren't great leaders even if they seemed to be when they were there because we're trying to build something sustainable and it's not about us and it's not about our ego it's about the team the school that's what matters most so let's talk now about then that transition, the next transition, if you like, from middle leadership into senior leadership. Perhaps that might be becoming a deputy head or an assistant head. What would you say fundamentally are the differences between the roles of a, of a middle leader and a senior leader? Again, it's about scale and scope. When you're a middle leader, whatever your particular area of responsibility might be, you normally have a fairly clearly defined domain. So this might be my department, this might be my year group or my pastoral group or whatever it is. One of the frustrations of being a middle leader is that your autonomy is always restricted to a degree. And there might be times when you think this is what we really need to do in this team. And someone at senior leadership level says no, for whatever reason, you can't do that. That's quite frustrating. But that's sometimes one of the things that motivates you to go for a senior role, a whole school role, because you want a little bit more... And it is power, but not power-crazy stuff. Just having the capacity, having the status sometimes to make things happen. And you, that's you the, the appeal. You about the ability to make the impact. That, yes, that, that desire of influence. To make yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you move from having ownership of this particular domain and trying to get the best from everyone in that domain to having a, a, a whole school role, usually, whether it's pastoral or academic, or teaching and learning, or whatever it might be which is a lot broader. You're dealing with a lot more people. You might be dealing with more parents. You might be working with governors. It's, 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 a, it's a broader canvas. Um, so you've got more people to try and get the best from. And that's a thrill and a privilege because actually you can affect the direction of the school. You're perhaps a little bit more strategic than you were when you were a middle leader. But again, you're trying to get the best from people and there might be a lot of people and some people may be much more responsive and receptive and some people may be more defensive. 
And if you go from there to be ahead, then the parameters, that sphere of influence is wider still. You know, everything is within your sphere of influence, which is simultaneously terrifying and thrilling. It's quite a privilege, but it's also quite a responsibility. So thinking then about the, the, that transition, if someone's listening, they're a middle leader and thinking, I aspire to deputy headship, I aspire to senior leadership, what can they be doing whilst in the middle leadership role that will best prepare them, if you like, to, for when they become a senior leader? I think anything which has a slightly wider reach. It's not unusual these days, I think, for schools to try to develop their strong middle leaders by giving them some whole school project. Perhaps it might be something that's, again, quite carefully defined and time-constrained, but something that, that takes them beyond their team to communicate with and build links with people in other areas of the school. And if you do that, even on quite a small scale, you're starting to build the skills you will need as a senior leader, and you're starting to prove yourself. You prove yourself to yourself as well as to everybody else. You know, I am capable of doing more than just lead a cracking group of PE teachers or whatever it is. I've actually got the capacity to do more than that because you need to develop that sense of the big picture. And I think it's hard when you're a middle leader. You need to be, you need to be an expert in your area. Again, if you're a head of department, I wouldn't say you need to be the best teacher in the department necessarily, although you shouldn't be the worst. You've got to be credible. But it isn't about being the best teacher. As a middle leader, it's about helping everybody else in the team be their best. That's your main purpose. Um, but sometimes it's tempting to... to see yourself as an advocate for your team. So you defend them and you fight your corner and you always speak up for your subject. Really, heads need from the best middle leaders a sense of perspective as well. So yes, I was head of English, I loved English, I still love English, but I can see that education doesn't begin and end with English. You know, competing priorities, aren't Absolutely. Yeah. Everything else is important. And if we're all just putting pressure on the students that we teach to do what we think is right in our subject, then those students can be dismembered when everybody is exerting that pressure. So really it's about having that big picture, that, that broader perspective, and seeing that I have a place in this, and I care deeply about that place, and I want my team to be a beacon of excellence in this school. I want the head and the senior leaders to look at us and say, that's a great group of people, it's well-led, it's performing well. That's how you cope with the frustration of the limited autonomy. I'm going to be a beacon of excellence. People are going to look to us as a really positive example of what can, what can be achieved. But I'm ready to scale that up. I'm ready to take some of those things and to work on a whole school scale and see whether I can affect change in that kind of, that kind of scope. So let's talk specifically about the role of deputy now, or, or assistant head, I think. Um, interesting, if I draw on my own experience here, I would say that I found the role of deputy head probably the most challenging of all the leadership roles I did in school, probably in some ways more challenging than being a head. Um, is that common? Do other people find deputy headship challenging? I think it depends on the head that you deputise for, for a start. I should say my head was very <laughs> was excellent. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure. But I think you need to feel that you're on the same page and that your head is is supporting you and investing in you. And you, you're doing a lot of firefighting as a deputy head. You're doing a lot of troubleshooting. Um, again, finding ways forward, you know, dealing with conflict. I remember I'm quite an organised person. I'm systematic. I like to, I like to plan. 
I remember driving into school when I was a deputy thinking, I have no idea what I'm going to be spending my time on today. I've planned my lessons, I've planned my assembly, I'm ready for that meeting. But what I deal with today will depend on which parent is on the phone, which students are clashing heads, which staff are in conflict with each other or with students. And you have to be able to to deal with that calmly, professionally. Uh, You will always know what to do, but you need to know who to talk to and how to resolve it. And I think that's quite pressured. Um, You will deal with things that you can't possibly anticipate. You will deal with things that are challenging that you've never come across before. As a head, you're one step back from that and a little bit protected. If you've got good senior leaders who are doing that, freeing you up to do something that's a bit more strategic, whole school, PR, speaking for the school, um, perhaps working beyond the school but representing the school. So I can see that being a deputy is, in some respects, it is a different kind of pressure, I would say. I really enjoy being a deputy. I work for two different heads. Um, The one who appointed me was retiring at the end of my first year and then her successor was appointed. I I love them both dearly. But interestingly, one of the things that made me realise I wanted to be a head was recognising how much I enjoyed it when my head was out of school. I, I was the single deputy, so people were then looking to me as school leader. Now, I That's know, a pretty good sign, isn't it? If, people, if yes. someone's a deputy and, and having that experience of, yeah. hmm, I enjoyed this, that it, might it be is. a sign that you're, you're ready you're or ready. you will be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think so. I think, I mean, I was a deputy for five years, so I think it, it, it builds over time, really. But I did know other deputies who were a little bit rabbit in the headlights. Whenever their head was out of school, it was also, oh my God, where are they? When are they back? How can I get in touch with them? And increasingly, I didn't feel like that. I thought, I know, I know this is, this is a, a, almost a safe space in which to practice my head teacher skills because if there were a major disaster, the head would come back or they'd be contactable. Nevertheless, I, I, I do like this. I like this feeling. And increasingly, even though I really respected the two heads that I worked for, I found myself thinking, actually, I'm not sure I would have said that or made that decision or dealt with it quite in that way. And that's because you're formulating your vision of the head you will one day be. But I did enjoy being a deputy. And in the summer, having left my deputy headship before I started my headship, I had a bit of a kind of meltdown in B&Q car park one day where I just said to my husband, what am I doing? You know, I'm a good deputy, I know what I'm doing. Um, after five years, I kind of I felt I'd really got a good, strong handle on the job. I have no idea whether I can be ahead or not. I just, I'm taking this huge leap into the unknown. I had a real crisis of confidence moment. Um, but I pulled myself together and I started my headship And I just loved it, James. It was the best job I did. It was the most enjoyable, rewarding, joyful job of the seven jobs I've done in my career. And it it isn't easy. There are all sorts of challenges. But actually, I I just loved the fact that I was leading a school that was... it, It felt like my school. I felt like I was able to put my stamp on it, make my mark, um leave it in a better place than I found it even though I took over from an exceptional head it was a very strong school when I took over by the time I left 10 years later I felt I'd achieved something and and again it's a privilege to do that so I can literally see your passion for headship as we're talking (laughs) but before I I want to come on um, and talk about the sort of the the headship side of things but one last question before we do um, what is it that successful deputy heads do do they have 
characteristics in common, traits in common? What is it about their work that makes them successful in that role? I think, I mean, interestingly, because senior leaders, it's quite a broad church. And even if you talk about being a deputy head or being an assistant head, even more so, you look at the, the job descriptions and the responsibilities of people with those titles, and they can be very, very different. Interestingly, in the early years of my career, I mean, we didn't have assistant heads in the early years. We had senior teachers who were probably what became assistant heads. But I do look at assistant heads now, and I think, actually, that seems to me like a deputy job, without the title and often without the remuneration. Um, if you're a deputy who deputises for the head, so you do take the head's role when the head's out, then obviously you need to be able to do that in a way that inspires confidence in people. I think that's, that's key. And it's great to have that opportunity as a preparation for headship. Similarly, if you can be acting head for a period of time, as sometimes that happens for a variety of reasons, then it gives you a real taste of how it might be and how I would act. And, and also what I need to to firm upon what, where I need to build my confidence and my expertise and that, those technical skills we were talking about. But basically, I do think deputies, senior teams generally, they just keep the wheels oiled and the ship moving and you know, things going as smoothly as possible and dealing with whatever comes up so that the children still get a good deal, the staff are able to do a good job. If, as a senior leader, you are making it harder for the staff to do their job, then you've really got to take stock of that and one of the things I worry about a little bit with all these extended senior teams and there are lots of new people coming into senior teams and now we talk about associate assistant heads and I'm thinking hang on a minute I understand heads wanting to keep good people and give them new responsibilities and challenges but if you have a new member of the senior team they're really keen to do a good job and make their mark and what can happen is that all these senior team members are sending out requests and emails and, and jobs for the teacher to do or the head of department to do, and it becomes unsustainable. So one of the things that I think is important in a successful senior team is that you do have a reasonably clear, clear overview of what it is you're expecting from the staff, and you make sure that it's reasonable and proportionate and sustainable, and that people aren't just being expected to pedal faster and, and work harder to, to, to keep up. Um, so there are lots of ways in which you can be a successful senior leader, but I think an awareness and a recognition of what is facing the classroom teacher, the middle leader, is a really key part of that. NAHT Edge is a union and professional association aimed at teachers with leadership responsibilities. Whether you're a subject coordinator, year leader, key stage leader, early years leader, SENCO or head of department, we offer full trade union protection and high quality advice. In addition, our weekly newsletter and monthly podcast keeps you up to speed with the latest developments in education. Membership of NEHT Edge costs just £13.50 a month. Find out more by visiting www.nahtedge.org.uk. The highest calibre of guests, like the head of Ofsted, the Chartered College of Teaching and acclaimed experts. You're listening to The Leadership Podcast. Let's get back to the central part of this episode of The Leadership Podcast and the second part of our interview with Jill Berry, in which James and Jill discuss making the leap from deputy head to head teacher. 
So let's talk now about uh, the journey from deputy to head and also the, the, the challenge and also the joys of headship because I know from before you're talking about how much you enjoyed the role. And um, one of the things you talk about in the book that really struck me is you talk about this apparent paradox. Mm-hmm. You say that on one hand, deputy headship seems like the best possible preparation for yeah. headship. But you say on the other hand, the two roles are very, very different. Yeah. Um, so could you perhaps say a bit more about that? And and. In what way is headship distinctive from all the other leadership roles you do in school? I think one of the... I do think being a deputy is the best preparation because, again, it can give you a taste of it. So when your head isn't there and you're in the head seat, it gives you a taste of it. You're working so closely with the head, or you should be working closely with the head. So you're learning quite a lot about what the head does and what the head doesn't do. The best heads, I think, are really good at helping their deputies, especially if they know their deputies do have headship in their sights to work with governors, perhaps they're involved in marketing or PR or community liaison. So they're giving them a good range of experiences, getting them ready for the time when they may be in the hot seat. But it is a different role because being a deputy is much more operational and being a head isn't operational. You have to have the overview of the operations, but you're not involved in the nitty-gritty to the same extent. All six of my participants, I deliberately chose people who were deputies rather than assistant heads or directors of studies or whatever. I chose people who were all moving to a new school because that's another issue. If you become appointed to the headship in the school where you are a deputy, that's a particular challenge. And you have a number of advantages, but you also have some disadvantages and you have to balance the two. So I wanted people who were moving to new schools So you move to a new school as a head, and you are the school leader, you're responsible for everything, you're in charge of everything, but but kind of through the people that you work with, you're not, you won't know the detail of finance that your school business manager will know, you don't need to, but you need to know enough to know that the school business manager is on the ball and doing a good job and can be trusted. Um, you might have someone else doing the timetable, you have someone else overseeing exams, you have someone else working with all the pastoral leaders. And sometimes as a new head coming into a school, you won't even know how some of those things really work in that institution. When I was a deputy, I kind of knew how everything worked in that school. And I moved to be a head, and it's a little bit unnerving that you think, actually, initially I've got to trust all these people to do their jobs, because... I don't quite know how it works in this context. So I'm getting a sense of what you're saying, that one of the one of the skills of headship in particular is surrounding yourself with the right people, getting the right people yeah. on the bus to use the sort of it Jim is, Collins It is, the Jim phrase. Collins thing. It is. But when you become a head, well, sometimes in the lead-in period you have the opportunity to be involved in appointments. It depends what's happening and how long the lead-in period is. But in the main, you inherit. You inherit a PA, and your relationship with that person is important. And sometimes, as a senior leader, you may never have had a PA before. So that's an interesting dynamic. You inherit your senior team. You inherit your governing body, including your chair of governors. And you inherit all all the staff, teaching staff, support staff, leaders at all levels. You may look round and think, actually, I wouldn't have appointed that person. I don't think he or she is in the right job. I don't think this senior team structure is quite where it needs to be and over time you will have the opportunity to put some of your people in the right seats on the bus but initially you you walk into that situation you inherit things that you may not have chosen and you've got to be able to to work with them so in the book I talk a lot about this inheriting versus inhabiting you inherit you have a legacy 
I, I think actually even if you move to be head of a brand new school, there would still be some legacy, some expectations from whatever had gone before that in some respects constrain you. Any good head won't just want to inherit. You don't just want to slip into the shoes of your predecessor. You want to inhabit it, you want to make the job your own, you want to do it in a way that's true to you. But sometimes it, it will take time. Sometimes you have to assume you can trust people until you have evidence to the contrary. You can't assume people aren't trustworthy until they have earned that trust. But sometimes it can take a little bit of time to work out, actually, she's really good at that job. He's in the wrong seat. And you talk in the book about being very wary of jumping to conclusions. Mm. So you said there about you know going in and thinking, well, I don't think this person is... But you talk a lot about just be careful about those initial reactions that somebody might appear in a certain way or and actually you might find out a few months down the line you yeah. misread that. I suppose that's something to be really careful. Yeah, or, or people might tell you things that actually on reflection, actually their perception is not quite my perception. It, that's the tricky thing, I think, really. Someone compared it with being a, someone moving into a new house with a garden and you don't want to start pulling things up in the garden until you've seen what grows. But at the same time, you can't be overrun with weeds either. You know, how do you know when to act and when to wait? And uh, choosing what you don't do is just as important as choosing what you do. Sometimes not taking action isn't isn't a cop out. It's it's a strategy until I have a little bit more information. But you do need to work out who who can I trust, who should I be listening to, and actually, you need to work that out during the the appointment process because if you think. I'm not the right person to lead this school. This isn't the right kind of school for me. Then that needs to inform you through the process. And I would always say, if it isn't the right school for you, if, it's, if you're stepping into an ethos which is actually alien to what you believe, if what the governors are saying is something you're uncomfortable with, then you need to be able to, to step back from that. Because as I say in the book, not getting a job is not the worst thing that could happen to you. Getting the wrong job could definitely be the worst thing for you and for them. And I'd like to talk about that for a moment, because you do talk in the book about choosing the right school for you and that being a, a crucial decision as a deputy when you're, you know, you're choosing a school as much as they are choosing you. Yeah. I suppose my question is, how do people do that? that mm. you know, what should people be doing in order to determine whether or not yeah. this school is right for them or will be a school where they can be a successful head teacher? I um, One of the things I, I do at the moment, I work with diverse leaders, so I work with groups of, of women and groups of um, BAME, men and women, who are underrepresented groups in headship at the moment, and, and I talk to them about thinking about your negotiables and your non-negotiables, so even in terms of school type... Just start off thinking, what are the parameters here? I, I worry about people who are so desperate to be heads that actually they don't think about that. They'll just apply for anything that moves. And I think that's not, that's not a great strategy. So I think you need to have some... Just like when you move into a place and you're buying a new house, if you don't have any parameters at all, you don't know where to start looking, do you? You need to think about, this matters to me. I'm flexible about that. I, I don't mind about that. So you do have to have some idea of what kind of school you think you are the right head for so whenever you go for an interview whenever you apply for a job you need to be thinking in terms of what do I bring what do I offer inevitably you're thinking about what do I gain as well but the appointment panel are less interested in what you gain they're very interested in what you might offer and how you're a fit how you're a match 
And when you're doing your application, you have to be able to demonstrate you are a really good match to what they want. Not because you've done all the jobs, because you won't have done, but because you've got the temperament and the skills, the transferable skills to do those jobs. If you find you're struggling in the application form to show you're a match, perhaps it's not the right school for you. And you need to do your research, you need to do your reading, you need to visit, you need to be talking to people. But I suppose at the other end of the spectrum, is it, I suppose it's also true that there is probably no perfect school. It's unlikely uh, that you're going to find a school that you deem to be an absolutely perfect match for you that ticks all the boxes. You use sort of buying the house analogy in the sense that you never find the house that ticks all the boxes. Is, is there an element of truth in that as well? I think so. I think if you're too picky and if your parameters are too narrow and your non-negotiables are really too huge, then you're reducing your chances of being successful. One of the things you have to think about is geography. You know, all, all six of my research participants moved to schools in other parts of the country as they uprooted their families, their children went to new schools, their partners had to change jobs or you know, be without work for a while. It was a big family decision. If you say, I, I've got a very narrow geographical location because I don't want to travel or whatever, um, then you're restricting yourself. And the more you restrict yourself the more difficult it's likely to be. I also worry a little bit about people who apply internally, um, who say, but I only want to be the head of this school. I love this school. You know, I'm, I'm wedded to this school. I want to be head here. I, I don't want to be head anywhere else. I think you, you stand less of a chance because I don't think you've demonstrated that it's headship you're really dedicated to. And I also think having worked in a range of schools is a good preparation. I think I was a better head because it was my sixth school. Having said that, I know sometimes people stay in the same school for a long time for all kinds of reasons. But I think moving schools often can, can give you, again, that perspective, that sense of the big picture. And, and perhaps quite a specific question now, but it's related to that. Do you feel that some people are suited to schools in certain Ofsted circumstances? So for you, like, uh, someone might be suited to going and working in a school that currently is inadequate and needs a certain approach to headship, whereas other people wouldn't be suited to that and would be far happier in, say, a good or outstanding school. Is there any truth in that? I think outstanding schools sometimes struggle to recruit because people think, well, you know, I could work really, really hard <laughs> just to keep us where we are, and... And, and the danger, particularly schools that were outstanding under one framework, and the framework changes. I know people in schools who say, well, this is technically outstanding, but if Ofsted came tomorrow, it wouldn't be. And it would look as though I had done a poor job. Um, and I don't think there's any problem going to be head of a school that requires improvement or in special measures, as long as your eyes are open and you, you see clearly where things are and what might need to be done, and you feel you have some faith in your capacity to do it. In a way, it's fantastic to go in there and to make an impact and to, to see those immediate signs of, of success and moving forward. Um, I, I do think, and generally, and I have to say this because I feel so strongly about it, I know we have a real recruitment and retention problem in teaching. I think sometimes people are in the wrong school and they're unhappy because they're in a school that isn't right for them. It may be that the leadership just isn't right for them. It may be that the ethos, the vision and values just isn't right for them. And I worry when those people leave teaching because I think actually a change of school, perhaps a change of type of school, might keep them in the profession. And I would always say if you are disaffected as a teacher, 
try a change of school before you walk away from teaching. Similarly, as a leader, if it isn't working for you, it may not be a lack on your part. It may just be that although you felt you did your research, you, you've ended up in a school that, that isn't, you're not quite aligned somehow. And it is about moral purpose and it is about core values and it's about ethos when you're looking at headship it's really important that you and the governing body are on the same page here because you don't want to end up in a headship where the governors are requiring you to do things that you think actually I don't think that's the right thing to do and I suspect you would say and correct me if I'm wrong but there's no one single way to be a great head teacher there is okay there is there's one way to be a head teacher and that's your way That's clever, isn't it? I didn't say that. (laughs) Brenda Despontian said that. And I remember reading, there's only one way to be ahead. And I thought, what? And then she said, and that's your way. And and I know it sounds a bit corny, but every job you do, you have to do in a way that's true to you, to who you are, to what you believe. You have to be fairly clear about your philosophy, really, about education and about leadership, so that you know, this is the kind of leader I want to be. And if that job requires me to be a very different sort of leader, then it, it isn't a match. It isn't a match. So you will learn as a head, and the school will change you just as you will change the school in some ways, and that's fine, and you have to be flexible and you have to be adaptable. But there have to be some fundamental principles that actually aren't changed on a whim. And, and that's what I think education is, is all about. And it might be, for example, to do with... Things like behaviour, you know, all the discussion about the no excuses and the hard line stuff, or the being more flexible and adaptable. And I'm not a, a black and white person. I'm a shades of grey person. Um, and I'm not one who will absolutely condemn other things because I think if it's right for that context and it's working for them, we should respect that. But I think you need to have some views about that. So if you think, well, actually, the, the no excuses behaviour framework just doesn't work for me or the restorative justice behavior framework doesn't work for me if you go into a school which is alien to what you stand for a you could be miserable and b you're not likely to be effective so those people there'd be some people listening here who've got a headship they're about to start it in september we're you know probably some listen to this a couple of months away what advice would you give them in terms of preparation between now and september and then also those first crucial three or four weeks when they arrive i think Context is key, and I think you need to tune into the context of the school that you're joining, and you need to do lots of listening and lots of reflecting. I think in the early months um, before you start, your lead-in period, I, I talk about being known and knowing, so learning things about the school, about the people, about the community, about those areas where you feel less secure finance is one of those things often people feel you know having responsibility for finance on that scale there are things that you can read there are things you can you can shadow talk to you know can I sit in some meetings can I have some time with the business manager to talk through you know the spreadsheets whatever it might be so you're plugging gaps and you're building your confidence but you're also learning to be known and, and be established I had a full year lead in And it was great. I went to a number of different events, just as a spectator, just sitting there, smiling, chatting to people. And by the time I started, I think I already knew quite a lot, quite a few people knew me, and I think that made it easier for the school. It seemed less of a... um, 
I mean, it is a new beginning, and that's quite energising. Even if you like the outgoing head, having a new head is, is quite an exciting thing for a school. But the head I took over from, she was taking early retirement at 55. She'd been 10 years there and 10 years of another school, head of another school before that. She was really experienced. I was 41 when I was appointed a deputy. I'd never been a head. And when I look back, I would have expected I would have had a tougher time initially than I actually did. But I think because I'd had that year, I felt more confident and people were starting to feel confident about me. And my job was to try to recognise what could I bring that perhaps this great head who'd been there 10 years, where, where could I find my space? Where could I make my mark? Um, and I was different from her. And using those differences helped me, I think. But one of the, the pieces of advice I would give is that you need to listen a lot and you need to ask a lot more questions than you make statements. And be very careful about the statements that you make because people will will hang on them and sometimes will extrapolate things from them. There's no such thing as a throwaway comment ever again because you say something... One of my participants said, you know, I was just thinking aloud, Jill. No, you can't do that because you just said something thinking aloud and other people were having sleepless nights or, you know, your deputy was partway through devising a new policy and you said, well, what's this? And I was just thinking aloud. The words of leaders are yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and that's quite... That's quite difficult. If you're not the sort of person who status isn't a big thing for you, you have to recognise that to some people, the fact that you're the head, it makes them quite anxious. Um, and it's you have to be... I think you just have to be aware and alert and responsive. People's expectations of how you should behave may be in tension with your expectations of how heads behave or how you want to behave. And you need to navigate your way through that. And I want to ask one final question, which is, um, despite the challenges that we know come with headship and, and some of the negative stories that, that are around in terms of headship and the, the pressures and what have you, um, why do you think that a middle leader or a deputy, indeed a teacher listening to this, should still consider going for it one day? I think ultimately it comes back to this phrase, um, which isn't my phrase, but I've heard it a lot and I use it a lot, which is, well, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? If we're committed to education, if we recognise that schools need good leaders at all levels, then if people who have the capacity aren't prepared to step up, where does that leave us in education? I think if you work for a poor leader, I always hope people think, I'm going to go on and be a leader and I'm going to do a better job than that. What, what is really worrying is when people think, God, if that's what leadership does to you, I don't have anything to do with it. Or, you know, I don't really want to be in teaching. And I think it is about stepping up and it is about being prepared to put yourself out there. Um, I think you need to be clear-sighted about the challenges, but to have a strong enough sense of moral purpose to say, I'm going to do it anyway. You need to feel the fear and be prepared to do it anyway and to step up. And I would say, I mean, I know so many heads who, despite the challenges of the job, you don't hear them say, I wish I were a deputy still. It, and, and I think it is a thrill, it is a privilege, and it's worth it. It's worth it. Well, that's all from Jill, and indeed all from us for this episode. 
To make sure you get all future podcasts from NAHT and NAHT Edge, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. And by subscribing, you can also access our back catalogue of episodes, including interviews with Becky Allen, Mary Myatt and Amanda Spielman of Ofsted. For regular and useful content on the teaching profession, it has to be the School Leadership Podcast. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. NAHT Edge is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT Edge or NAHT member, go online to nahtedge.org.uk forward slash join or www.naht.org.uk forward slash join. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at NAHT Edge and at NAHT News.